Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. And this week we'll be talking with Brian Hook, the Trump administration's top diplomat dealing with Iran. Now, before we bring Brian in, it'll be recalled that two years ago in May, 2018, the Trump administration stepped back from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal, which had been considered a landmark foreign policy achievement by the Obama administration. In the JCPOA's place, the Trump administration introduced a policy of maximum pressure on Iran, that is, unprecedented and painful sanctions to compel Iran to change its regional behavior and negotiate a new and more expansive nuclear deal. Now, Iran has a population of about 83 million, about 35% of which are under 25. The official unemployment rate in Iran is 11%, but that's an official number. It's likely much higher, especially among Iran's youth. U.S. secondary sanctions on purchases of Iranian oil and other aspects of trade with Iran are taking a toll on the Iranian economy. Iran's economy shrank by 7.6% last year and is expected to contract by another 6% this year. Oil exports were over 2.1 million barrels per day in 2017, and now three years later, they're at 500,000 barrels per day. Oil revenues fell from over $100 billion in 2017, the year before the administration sanctions, to just $8 billion in 2019. Inflation in Iran is 22%. And again, that's the official number, could be higher. This gloomy picture, and we've only here been talking about economics, has been made all the worse by the recent fall in oil prices and the COVID-19 pandemic. And with regard to politics, a recently elected parliament is composed overwhelmingly of a new wave of conservatives who are more aligned with the strident anti-Western posture of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And this crowd blames Iran President Hassan Rouhani for the JCPOA and the country's current economic crisis. The U.S. finds itself and its regional partners at odds with Iran over fault lines in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Gaza, Yemen, and throughout the Gulf. And last week, we saw a mysterious explosion at the Natanz Iran nuclear facility, which some unnamed sources are attributing to Israel, which, as is custom, does not comment or confirm or deny such reports. To sort this all out, we're pleased to have with us today the Trump administration's top Iran official, Brian Hook. His official title is U.S. Special Representative for Iran and Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Brian previously served as Director of Policy Planning under Secretary of State Tillerson and held a number of senior policy appointments during the George W. Bush administration. Brian, welcome to On the Middle East. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you. Let's get right into it. I'll begin with a topic that has been a priority for the Trump administration and something I know that means a lot to you personally, and that's bringing home Americans who have been held unjustly in Iran. Last month, you secured the release of Michael White. He had been held in Iran for two years on charges of insulting Khamenei, and that followed the swap six months earlier, which, which brought home uh, Zhi Wang. Now, President Trump tweeted after the White release, thank you to Iran. Don't wait until after the U.S. election to make the big deal. I'm going to win. You'll make a better deal now, Explanation, exclamation point. <laughs> and you said about 10 days later that you hope for further prisoner exchanges and negotiations on the wide range of vexing issues in U.S.-Iran relations. What are the prospects for diplomacy, both to secure the release of remaining Americans in Iran, including Bakr and Siamak Namazi and others, and for the big deal the president is talking about? I hope the prospects are good. We have been able to successfully negotiate two uh, prisoner deals. And as a consequence, uh, Shiwe Wang is back at Princeton and Michael White is back in California with his family. Otherwise, those two would be, uh, one would be in Evan prison, and the other one would be in, uh, in, in the prison in Mashhad. So it's always great to uh, win the freedom of somebody who's been held hostage, as both, of the, as both of those men were. I have requested uh, an in-person consular dialogue with the regime. Uh, I think they're probably going to continue to stick with the Swiss intermediary instead of doing um, direct talks. I, I've repeatedly proposed direct talks, but um, the Iranians, I don't think, have a mandate to have direct talks from the Supreme Leader. And so we use the Swiss government, uh, the Swiss ambassador in Tehran, Marcus Leitner, is a superb diplomat, and he's been able to act as the liaison between uh, myself and the regime. There, as you mentioned, there's still the Namazis and also Murad Tabaz. We would like to have a full accounting of Bob Levinson's uh, death. We would like to get his remains back to his family. So that's the current mission set. It's those four individuals. I work on it every day. We've got a great special envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Karstens, who works on this. And uh, I, I'm in regular touch with the families. And uh, look, to your broader question, is this going to lead to a, a bigger deal? We hope so. That's what the president would like to see. He's had the door wide open for diplomacy for a number of years. Uh, but the supreme leader, when faced with the choice of diplomacy or managing economic collapse, keeps choosing economic collapse. Brian, just, just to be clear, so you have made it clear to Iranian officials that you want direct talks about the Americans held in Iran and also about the other many issues in vexing U.S.-Iran relationships, but it's the Iranians who don't want to talk to you. Well, we have repeatedly requested in-person talks, um, but the regime is not comfortable with that, and so we work through the Swiss. Uh, this is another example of uh, the Iranian regime, I think, missing good opportunities to make progress uh, uh, on the differences. We've got big differences between uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and the United States. Uh, the president would like to get to a better deal, and that's what he communicated in his uh, statement after we brought home Michael White. 
And so ultimately it's up to the regime. You know, the president has also said, you know, while he would like a deal, he knows that our policy toward Iran has been successful. And so in some ways, while we would like to get a deal, we're also in no hurry because our, our strategy against Iran is working. Maximum economic pressure, diplomatic isolation, um, and the credible threat of military force to defend our interests, that's a winning combination. And every Iran strategy needs that combination of policy initiatives. And if you don't have those, and those were unfortunately quite absent in the prior administration, uh, when they gave up on, on their pressure and settled for a very bad deal. Uh, so we have the right policy in place. And at some point or another, we hope the regime will sit down at the table. Besides prisoner uh, exchanges and getting the Americans home, what would be the other first order issues on the agenda with Iran if you were to sit down directly? Is there uh, some, and, and are there some areas where you could and would like to see Iranian behavior change? And that would be some signal that there is change. Well, we have changed Iran's behavior, but we have not seen a change of heart. So our max pressure has denied the regime by President Rouhani's uh, accounting $200 billion. And I'll let you use your imagination on how that regime would spend $200 billion if they had the chance. They would waste it on their proxies throughout the Middle East. They'd give it to Hamas, PIJ, Lebanese Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, militant networks in Bahrain. It's a long list. You know, they've conducted terrorism across five continents. So that's where they would spend the money. So we have forced a change in behavior because money is the sinews of war. That's what they need. And they don't have the money they used to. Uh, they're facing a, a big financial crisis. The three worst performing economies in the world are Venezuela, Libya, and Iran today. That's the company that Iran is keeping. And, but again, Secretary Pompeo made this very clear two years ago when we announced our new strategy. The regime can either behave like a normal nation, it's not too much to ask, or they can watch their economy collapse. And that's what, that's what they've chosen. That's too bad. So we need to end enrichment. I, I, sometimes I get this question from the media, you know, are you worried that Iran is closer to a nuclear breakout or what is the nuclear breakout for Iran? And I say, your question illustrates the problem. We shouldn't be having this discussion. The right standard is to restore the UN Security Council standard of no enrichment. And if you do that, it moots the question of how close Iran is in terms of nuclear breakout. More than half the countries in the world that have peaceful nuclear power do not enrich. UAE is a shining example of the right path. They just recently celebrated the 10th anniversary of their civilian nuclear program. No enrichment. That's what, that's, that should be the standard for that region. Ryan, picking up on this point, uh, unnamed sources, as it were, are saying Israel was behind the explosion at the Natanz nuclear facility last week in Iran. Um, Israel, Israel, of course, doesn't comment on this, neither conform nor denies, and I'm not going to ask you uh, who's behind the blast, but how concerned have you been about Natanz? Well, we, uh, we certainly have been monitoring reports of, of the fire. Um, the way that we look at it is this incident serves as another reminder of how the Iranian regime continues to prioritize 
an unnecessary nuclear program to the detriment of the Iranian people. And it's also um, their, all of their cat and mouse they're playing with the IAEA is also deepens their isolation. So I don't have any uh, specific uh, answer to your question on how it happened or why it happened or uh, questions of that nature. Uh, last week when I was in the Middle East on the way home, I stopped in Vienna to meet with the International Atomic Energy um, Association's Director General uh, Grossi, DG Grossi, and he briefed me on the frustration that the Board of Governors is having. Uh, starting about 12 months ago, Iran stopped answering questions from nuclear inspectors. Uh, and then for the last four months, they've been denying access to suspicious nuclear sites. Uh, you mentioned Natanz. Natanz is, has a notorious history as one of the facilities that they did not disclose uh, back in what would have been about 2003 or four, that ultimately led to a referral. The Iran regime's nuclear program was referred to the UN Security Council, and that then set into motion a multilateral sanctions um, uh, regime against Iran. So we would like to see Iran uh, just simply behave again like a normal nation. There are something like, I want to say, close to 200 countries that have signed up for the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. There's only one of them that is refusing access and declining to answer questions. And Iran needs to live up to its obligations under the NPT, the Safeguards Agreement, and answer and give access to the IAEA. Brian, before your trip to Austria, you were in Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE last week. Obviously, you talked about Iran. What was top of mind to bring you out to the region during the COVID pandemic to talk with our partners there about Iran? Is it concerns about the nuclear program? Are you anticipating any changes uh, or actions regarding or by Iran in the near future? The purpose of my trip was to start discussing the expiration, the looming expiration of the UN arms embargo on Iran. Uh, we're about four months away from the Iranian regime being able to freely purchase fighter jets, attack helicopters, large, uh, large caliber artillery systems, uh, missiles uh, up to 300 kilometers, submarines, and the last thing the Middle East needs is more Iranian weapons. And I visited the countries that you mentioned. I also visited Bahrain. But if you look at UAE, Saudi, Bahrain, and Israel, these are the countries that are in Iran's crosshairs. And these countries have, um, you know, Iran can't be at peace with its neighbors because it's an expansionist revolutionary regime. We're trying to get it to be at peace with its neighbors. Uh, if the UN Security Council lets this arms embargo expire in October, it will set off an arms race in the Middle East and make that region even more volatile. So I went, I'm, went there and met with um, various foreign ministers um, and also met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And in each stop, every country made clear they called on the UN Security Council to extend the arms embargo. The United States has circulated a resolution in the council that would extend it. We very much hope that the five permanent members of the council can come to an agreement so that this uh, can be extended. 
Brian, that was my next question. Uh, both you and Secretary Pompeo in recent weeks have, have been engaged at the Security Council about the arms embargo. How confident are you, are you that you can hold the line and keep that going, including with our allies, but there's also Russia, China? There's, I think, a, a, a growing acceptance that it was a mistake in the Iran nuclear deal negotiations to permit the arms embargo to expire in year five. And by the way, it gets worse from here. In, in three years, 2023, all of the missile restrictions expire. And then the nuclear restrictions <clears throat> start to expire. This deal is going to start unraveling in four months and it's gonna keep unraveling until there's, no, until there's no thread left. And that is the nature of this deal. It was a modest and temporary non-proliferation agreement that gave Iran a patient pathway to a nuclear weapon. And there's these sunset clauses, and this is just a very badly negotiated deal. And one of the first things that we have to contend with is the arms embargo expiring. There is no national security argument to allow it to expire. There's no way that I think any permanent member of the council or any of the elected 10 members of the council can with a straight face argue that what the, that what the region needs is the arms embargo to expire on the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism and the world's leading state sponsor of anti-Semitism. So this is the, the arguments that we're making publicly. We've got a lot of countries that support this. I didn't get a chance to visit Yemen, but the government in Yemen also wrote a letter to the UN Security Council. So look, the, the council is, is, is vested with the mission of maintaining, maintaining international peace and security. And if, if they can't find a way to extend this embargo, it would be a betrayal of that mission. Iran again made the top of the State Department's list of supporters of uh, terrorism, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Some of this is uh, more of the same. One piece that stood out in this report, may have been in previous reports, I can't recall, is that Iran has provided safe haven to Al-Qaeda operatives. Tell me about this and other aspects uh, of the report that uh, you think deserve attention. Well, there have been for some years uh, various links between uh, the Iranian regime and Al-Qaeda. It's something that we talk about in this report. Um, I think the, the regime looks for marriages of convenience where they find them. And if they can um, find somebody to work with uh, to advance their interests, they do so. And, uh, you know, at heart, the... Islamic Republic of Iran is this Marxist theocratic kleptocracy that has been chanting death to Israel and death to the United States uh, for its 41-year history. And it will work with people that it thinks shares a similar mission set. So uh, our, our report, you know, uh, shows those linkages. Uh, Iran has been using terrorism as a form of, of statecraft for 41 years, going back to when they took all of our diplomats hostage uh, back in 79. And I think the Iranian people and the American people have a, a lot in common. I think, I think they share both interests and values. With the Iranian regime, we don't share interests or values. 
And uh, I've done a lot, the president and secretary and I have all made um, a lot of appeals to the Iranian people. And I think they know that we support them. We support their desire for a more representative government, one that doesn't appear as number one in the world in terrorism, because that ultimately ends up hurting the Iranian people because it causes isolation. It causes sanctions. Um, and so right now the regime is facing its worst economic crisis in its 41 year history. Um, that's in many ways because it wastes all of its money on nuclear programs it doesn't need and missile systems that are entirely beyond legitimate self-defense. They spend it, you know, since, since 2013, they've given Assad $10 billion. And just imagine if they had spent 10% of that on their own people. When I was in the region, you know, when you go to places like uh, Doha and Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Manama, uh, Tel Aviv, these are countries that are investing in their people. And then you look across the Gulf and you look at Iran and you just feel like the Iranian people have been robbed of decades of progress. And as I see the Iranian model compared with the model of the countries that I just described, I think the Iranian model is losing ground. We, see, we saw massive protests in Lebanon in October. We then saw protests in Iraq against Iranian interference. Iran had its worst protests in its history with 31 provinces protesting against the regime. The Iranian model is being rejected around the region. And I think the trend lines are very negative, but I'm very hopeful about the other countries that I mentioned. And I hope that they represent the future of the Middle East and not these sectarian revolutionary regimes which have caused so much death and suffering like Iran. Brian, there were some reports uh, last month that Iran may be stepping back or holding back in Syria, perhaps as a result of mm -hmm. maximum pressure by the United States. Do you see any evidence of this? We have seen the tactical displacement of Iranian troops in Syria. And the, when, when I met with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and the foreign minister and other senior Israeli officials, uh, I was briefed on uh, their work to defend themselves against Iranian attacks from Syria. And the Iranian regime has many interests in Syria. I would say it's keeping Assad in power and uh, keeping a, uh, a channel to Hezbollah and then also um, using Syria as a forward deployed missile base to attack Israel. And Israel has, has given it back to them time and again. And this has caused um, the, a lot of these Iranian troops uh, to move their positions north. So we fully support Israel's uh, right to defend itself. And I think that they look when we came into office our goal was to reverse iran's power projection in the region during the obama administration they bragged that they that they owned four capitals four arab capitals and they can't make that claim anymore um and and as, as we see israel israel has been a big part of that uh, i think during the iran nuclear deal there was something of a unspoken agreement that if Iran would comply with its nuclear commitments, that countries would look the other way as Iran expanded its non-nuclear threats. And that's what they did. So when we came into office, we had a policy of reversing those gains. And as I said 
uh, earlier, Andrew, we've had, we've really been able to, in places like Lebanon and Iraq, the protests in Iran, the way we've um, stood by Israel, uh, we've stood with Saudi uh, as the Iranians continue to attack them from the south through the Houthis. And we have stood with UAE. And this is the kind of policy that you need in place. You have to stand with your allies in order to reverse Iran's um, ambitions. They have hegemonic ambitions to dominate uh, the Arab world. And I'm, we're very pleased with the trend lines in Iraq. Prime Minister uh, Khatami is off to a very good start. And we're very pleased with it. I, I, I question whether we'd be in such a good position if Qasem Soleimani were still interfering in Iraqi politics as he has. And so um, I, I think the trend lines in Iraq are very positive. The Iraqi people are, are fed up with Iranian interference in their domestic matters. What the United States seeks, what this administration seeks is simply a normal bilateral relationship with Iraq. We want Iraq to be sovereign, we want it to be stable, and we want it to be secure. And the Iranian regime uh, wants the opposite of these three things. They would like to make Baghdad a suburb of Tehran. So uh, the government was formed, and so you've got President Baram Saleh and you've got Prime Minister Khatami. And from the senior officials that I've spoken there, they say that they haven't been this optimistic in 15 years. Uh, they very much like where things are going. And this new government has the support of the uh, Iraqi people to be free of Iranian interference. Look, the, uh, I was doing this contrast, as I mentioned earlier, right? Look at the cities in, in, in the Middle East that are the most free of Iranian interference. And those are the ones that are really thriving. And then look at the places where Iran has laid deep roots and look at, look at um, all of the indicators there are in a really bad place. Look, in Lebanon, uh, the, uh, it's lost 85% of its uh, value, its currency. And uh, Iran midwifed Hezbollah in the early 80s. And Hezbollah has been um, a drag um, on the Lebanese people. And, and so we see, a lot, we, we see people protesting this model of corruption, sectarianism, lack of accountability, violence and terrorism. There's a lot of frustration with that. And that model comes directly from Iran and it's been, they've been exporting it since 79. But we have exposed this regime in ways that, that don't have any historic precedent. And our sanctions on Iran have no historic precedent. They have dwarfed the uh, efficacy of the multilateral sanctions architecture that was in place before the Iran nuclear deal. We've done more unilaterally than ever has been done multilaterally. That would be with 193 nations working in concert against Iran. We have greatly exceeded, I think, the pressure that was in place prior to the Iran nuclear deal. So that pressure is gonna continue. Um, I'll give you one very sort of, I think, hopeful statistic. When we came into office, the Iranian military budget had reached record levels of spending. The first year we were in office, it went down 10%. The second year it went down 28%. And this year's budget, it's gonna probably go down even more. Uh, you see Hezbollah having to do fundraising drives. You see Shia militant group leaders saying that Iran isn't sending the money that it used to in the past. These are, these are the headlines that we want to be seeing. And we didn't see those prior to us coming into office. So 
we have the right policy in place. It's working. Um, when you're talking about the center of terror finance and money laundering, which Iran is, we have uh, really helped to disrupt and deter a lot of activity uh, that otherwise would have happened without our policy. Ryan, thank you. We appreciate your taking the time today to join us and talk about Iran and U.S. policy toward Iran on, on the Middle East. Great. Thanks for having me on. Good conversation and look forward to our next one. Same here. And we'll be back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here, On Israel, Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Brian Hook just told us that the U.S. is ready to talk directly with Iran about prisoner swaps and many other issues, but the Supreme Leader is dead set against direct talks. That's too bad, of course, because President Trump, as Hook said, would like to see direct talks on a wide range of issues, and the door for diplomacy is wide open if Iran would walk through it. If anything is going to happen before the U.S. presidential elections in November, or maybe even after, it seems it will likely be via the good offices of Switzerland, which Brian Hook talked about, or via other back channels or intermediaries. Well, let's hope that door for diplomacy can be kept open, if only via the Swiss. Bakker and Siamak Namazi and Murad Tabaz deserve to come home. Their detention is overdue and unjust. And Robert Levinson's family is owed an accounting and closure on his case after 13 years. It seems to me another prisoner swap, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, is a low-cost win-win for the United States and Iran and keeps the prospects of diplomacy alive on other issues. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. I will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. Mm-hmm.